Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, emptiness, inconceivability, awakening, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking once again with philosopher, author, and meditator Evan Thompson. Evan Thompson, PhD, works on the nature of mind, the self, and human experience. His work combines cognitive science, philosophy of mind, phenomenology, and cross-cultural philosophy, especially in Asian traditions. His most recent book is entitled, Why I Am Not a Buddhist, and it's about this intriguing work that he and I will speak in this episode. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Questioning Assumptions About Buddhism with Evan Thompson. Evan, welcome once again to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, last time you were here, you were promising that you'd have a new book out. Actually, you got into a teeny tiny bit of the material from your new book, which is called Why I Am Not a Buddhist, the ultimate clickbait title, (laughs) (laughs) really fun title. But now that book has come out. Yes, it uh, came out officially January 28th, 2020. So that's what a couple of weeks ago now. And it's making its way in the world. I'm excited to have it out there and, you know, we'll see what kind of response I get. Yeah, for this audience, which is notoriously sort of Buddhist or non-Buddhist or post-Buddhist or un-Buddhist or, (laughs) you know, really into meditating one way or another. This is certainly a fascinating topic. And, you know, you were kind enough to send me an advanced copy a few weeks ago. Actually, I bought a copy and got a free advanced copy. So I forgot that I had pre-ordered it long ago. So so (laughs) I got two of them on the same day. (laughs) Anyway, it's been really, really fascinating. And a lot of these topics I've been aware of or interested in. But what I think is so powerful here is that you're really clearly saying, look, let's talk about this issue and not hedge or kind of be mushy around it. Let's really talk about whether, you know, Buddhism is like a science of mind or it's a, actually a religion and what that means and how those are different and and a whole bunch of very interesting subtopics along those lines. So what I'm going to do is I really like the introduction part. So I'm going to just jump in with this gigantic question and just say, you know, Evan, how come you're not a Buddhist. <laughs> right. So one way to respond to that is actually, you know, just say a little bit about how that title came to me. Yeah. And the title came to me because, you know, for many, many years, I had been working very closely, living sometimes and working very closely with different Buddhist organizations. And I had kind of grown up in an environment where Buddhism was very present and influential. And that goes back to, you know, when I was a kid growing up in an organization my parents founded called the Lindisfarne Association. So this is in the 1970s. And this was an alternative institute community with resident teachers and conferences and fellows. And, you know, early in the 1970s, we had Buddhist teachers from the San Francisco Zen Center living with us and teaching Zen meditation. We had ties to the San Francisco Zen Center. My father, William Irwin Thompson, and the abbot of Zen Center at the time, Richard Baker Roshi, were friends and colleagues. 
And then a few years later, we had some Tibetan Rinpoches live with us. That was through Robert Thurman. So this is when I was a teenager, I was growing up around Buddhism. I went away to college and studied Buddhism academically. And then in the 80s and 90s, worked on the relationship between Buddhist philosophy and meditation and cognitive science with Francisco Varela, who was a neuroscientist and a practicing Tibetan Buddhist and a family friend. And after Francisco Varela died, I became very involved in the Mind and Life Institute, which he was the founding scientist of. And the Mind and Life Institute, you know, organized meetings between scientists and philosophers and the Dalai Lama, both in Dharamsala and internationally in the United States and in Europe. And I was one of the people who helped create the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute, which is a week-long training program, you could say, for scientists and scholars interested in the relationship between meditation practice and philosophy and cognitive science and clinical science. And for many years, I was a faculty member at the Zen Brain, now called the Varela Symposium, workshop and retreat at the Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe. So all of this is just to say that, you know, my life was very enmeshed with Buddhism and in all sorts of very rich ways. And so people would just naturally assume that I, you know, was Buddhist. And this included not just people I would meet at, you know, these kinds of workshops and events, but also my colleagues in philosophy, my students in university, you know, everybody just assumed, well, you know, Evan's a Buddhist. And, you know, there would be times in conversation where I would say, well, actually, no, I'm not. Buddhism is very important to me, but I'm not a Buddhist. And this would always surprise people, and they would want to know why. And it occurred to me at some point, well, I really should try to formulate in a clear way why I'm not. And that coincided with my becoming, I suppose you could say, dissatisfied with certain ways that the Buddhism science dialogue was going. And I felt a need to reflect on that what year would that be? So that would be, say, around 2010 or so, about 10 mm. years ago, I guess. Yeah. 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 So I started to feel, I mean, in some ways I always had ambivalences and the question of Buddhism in relationship to my own personal life and my own thinking as a philosopher it was always a question for me, even going back to when I was, you know, a teenager. And then... In, say, the you know beginning of the last decade, I started really observing how the science Buddhism dialogue had turned into an attempt on the part of some people to justify or legitimize Buddhism using science, and at the same time to claim that Buddhism was itself a kind of scientific discourse, a sort of inner science of the mind. And I realized that I had actually been caught up in this way of thinking and at that time, I was learning more about Buddhism from a historical perspective. I mean, I always knew sort of the basic historical narratives of Buddhism from having, you know, studied it as a student in university, for example. A student of Robert Thurman. Yeah, Bob Thurman. Yeah, Bob was, you know, my teacher at Amherst before he went to Columbia, Amherst College. And he was very influential on me in all sorts of ways. I mean, we could have a whole, you know, conversation about that too. But I became concerned that Buddhism was being given special treatment in a way that if we saw that kind of treatment being given on the part of, say, scientists to Christianity or Islam or Hinduism, indeed, in an earlier time, Hinduism or, you know, yoga 
was given that kind of treatment, say in the 70s around the science of transcendental meditation, we would immediately recognize that as something problematic. And I wanted to sort of bring that out, you know, in the discussions that we were all having. And this sort of led me down the rabbit hole, I suppose you could say, of writing this book, of thinking about, you know, how a certain way of thinking about Buddhism emerged historically, which treats Buddhism as either not a religion or as different from all other religions in being especially rational and empirical, where empirical means sort of oriented towards the nature of the mind revealed through rigorous introspective methods, that is to say meditation. And this didn't seem to me to be the right way to think about things. The original vision of Francisco Varela in founding the Mind and Life Institute was much more of a dialogue between a philosophical and ethical perspective that has its own rigor, but that is really different in many ways from science, and not to try to merge one into the other or use one to legitimize the other, but to have actually just a conversation where the two get to know each other and can challenge each other in a very open way. And I thought that spirit of challenge was being lost on both sides because Buddhism was being kind of assimilated into a scientific or you might even say a kind of scientific framework. And so that was the impetus for writing the book. And the book is then a critique of that way of thinking about Buddhism, that is to say, as a kind of inner science or mind science that either isn't religious or can be freed of its traditional religious framework. And I use that as really a vehicle for thinking about the relationship between science and religion and spirituality more generally. Yes. You know, I caught the bug of really being interested in neuroscience and meditation at a very, very deep level and was working on the Being Human project with Peter Bauman. Right. And I think you came to at least one of our events there. And, and it's just so fascinating and so interesting. And at one point, I ended up at a Mind and Life event, and a very, very large event, where a lot of science was being presented, a lot of very fascinating science. And I was just kind of shocked, because I would go to a presentation on someone's paper, and they're showing slides, and here's their charts and graphs of their brain science. And then they'd go, you know, His Holiness says this or that about this experiment. And I kept hearing, you know, His Holiness, His Holiness, His opinion on this science. And at lunch, I had to sit there for a minute and say to my friend, I was like, just imagine if they kept saying the Pope's opinion on this science. Mm -hmm. You know, if they said, well, the Pope thinks or the, you know, right. you could just never imagine that happening after the 1600s. It would be impossible, right? Right. And right. so... It really started me going, something's going on here that is very different than what I thought was going on here. Yeah, I was just going to say that's exactly right. I mean, I've had exactly the same response. And, you know, I'm not the only one. I mean, obviously, you just described your response, but other, you know, friends and colleagues of mine, you know, in this area, we've had exactly that kind of conversation where we've noted that, you know, either things that particular Buddhist teachers will say or Buddhist concepts are used to frame and could say, give meaning to the scientific studies or the scientific findings. Now, I mean, there are ways in which, of course, if you are doing scientific studies on, say, experienced Tibetan Buddhist practitioners, some of them may be Western, but many of them will be Tibetan, then of course you want to show proper respect for the culture and for the way that they think about what they're doing and how they conceptualize what they're doing. So one can say, well, you know, from their perspective, 
this is how they understand what they're doing, say, mentally in a certain type of practice. I mean, that's, of course, perfectly fine. Just as if you were studying, you know, an accomplished dancer, say, you would want to know how the dancer thought about what he or she was doing in performing in a particular way. So that's actually fine. And in some ways, that's actually necessary. It's rather the certification of it as somehow valid science or the use of concepts like enlightenment or awakening or pure awareness or fundamental goodness or innate compassion, using these kinds of concepts, which are fundamentally steeped in a ethical, you know, religious, soteriological that is concerned with liberation and salvation perspective that is not a scientific perspective, which is not to say that the relationship between the two has to be antagonistic. It's just to note that they are really very different perspectives. And if you slide one into the other, then you run the risk of confusing both of them. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, when we start to look at meditators or people with like many, many thousands of lifetime hours of very serious meditation, it's one thing to recognize they have very interesting, unusual brains, at least potentially, given that they've done this unusual activity for a very long time. And to note, you know, what's similar, what's different compared to naive controls and so on. And it's quite another to say we're going to look at the, you know, enlightened brain. And that's where it seems things get very, very dicey. Yeah, no, here I think, and I have a chapter in the book devoted to this concept of enlightenment and how it sort of plays out in this area of science and religion and spirituality. And here I think things can really get complicated and confusing because I think that enlightenment is not a thing. It's not a state. It's not an experience in the sense that it's a readily identifiable thing that we can all agree on. It's a concept that gets its meaning from one or another philosophical, conceptual system or practice tradition. And the meaning of the concept varies across all of these different contexts. And so to think that it's a kind of reifying or objectifying thinking, to think there is this thing called awakening or enlightenment, and we could determine what it is, and then we could identify it in terms of, say, specific brain activities. So, you know, part of the problem there, first of all, there's a general point that we could make independent of enlightenment, which is anything that a person does, you know, repeatedly through their life history is going to, you know, have an effect on their brain and on their biology. So an example I use in the book is, you know, suppose we looked at Yo-Yo Ma's brain while he's playing, you know, box cello suites, well, given that he's, you know, devoted years to the practice of the cello and he's, you know, a master musician, it stands to reason that his brain is going to look different with regard to, say, you know, musical cognition and musical perception than the brain of someone who's an inexperienced cello player. That's not really a terribly startling sort of thing to say. But just looking at his brain would tell us virtually nothing about the nature of music or the nature of Bach. You can't understand Bach unless you know something about, you know, traditions of musical composition and need to know about the culture and Christianity. So I think similarly for something like, you know, meditation practice, it's always situated in a community. 
in a tradition and just looking inside the brain, of course, you know, the brain is going to be affected by it in one way or another, especially if it's done intensively. But just looking at the brain is not necessarily going to, you know, be very revealing as to the nature of the practice. You have to look at the context in which it's done, which is something, you know, outside of the brain. So that's like a general point. But then specifically with regard to the concept of enlightenment or awakening, I think in our culture especially, you know, the culture of, say, people who might think of themselves as post-religious or spiritual but not religious, there's an idea that there is this thing called enlightenment or awakening. And I, I think that in a way it's a myth. I don't doubt that people have experiences that are, let's say, enlarging or enriching or you could even say illuminating just in the way that people have experiences of falling in love but what love is depends on how you think about it how you talk about it the culture you're in and the cultural practices around it and i think exactly the same thing is true of enlightenment or awakening it's just like love yes it can be intense as a personal experience but the meaning of it is something that has to do with the concepts we bring to bear in thinking about it and in talking about it and in how we you know structure all of the social relations and practices around it just as we do in the case of love it's such an interesting example because of course very few people would deny that love exists or that people can be in a state that we call being in love or whatever something's going on clearly right. and yet the point you're making is very well taken that what that means is so different in different societies and in different situations and to different people at different times and how that's going to look and play out in the world and maybe even play out in the brain is very, very different. In that sense, it's not a thing. You can't get in there with the scalpel and find right. the love neuron and examine it. Exactly. I mean, of course, you need a brain <laughs> to experience <laughs> love and to fall in love. And, you know, you need biology and things like that. But what love is, is culturally saturated with all sorts of things. So, for example, certain kinds of love, like European medieval courtly love, that kind of love is just completely inaccessible to us today because our cultural sensibility, our social relations, our understanding of gender, I mean, is so different from medieval feudal, you know, European society. So that kind of love is inaccessible to us. Similarly, the kind of awakening or enlightenment that you see in, say, ascetic Indian society in, well, to go far back to the time of the Upanishads or the time of the Buddha, that's inaccessible to most of us today because the world is very, very different. So what that means is that whenever we use the word enlightenment or awakening, we actually have to think about, you know, what is it we're trying to say here and now? What is it that we mean when we use this concept? Do we mean some kind of intense and transformative state that occurs through prolonged hours of sitting still and let's say observing your breath is that what we mean and if so then why is that you know something to be valued these are questions that we actually have to face and answer now we can't give answers to them by just falling back on the idea that well it's the experience that's had by everybody in any context whether it's medieval japan or 19th century you know korea or, you know, ascetic India, as if there's this thing, enlightenment, that's a universal across all these contexts. 
And it's certainly the case that different Buddhisms in different countries and even within those different Buddhisms in different cultures, the teachings of different individuals define enlightenment seemingly very differently. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. One of the points I make in the book is that this goes back to the beginning, as it were. That is, if you read, you know, the Pali Suttas or the Sanskrit Agamas, which actually exist only in Chinese, you already see in the earliest presentations of the Buddha's teaching different conceptions of what constitutes the Buddha's awakening. So it's not as if there was sort of one understanding that then kind of gets fractured and ramifies through the rest of history. Rather, it's been this way from the beginning. There's conceptions of the Buddha's enlightenment as a non-conceptual state that is actually technically a kind of cessation of all mental activity and feeling, although the body remains alive. That's a conception we see in the suttas. And then we see a conception that's cognitively very richly structured and that has to, in some sense, involve concepts because it involves understanding the truths of suffering, of impermanence, of no self, and all of that as a conceptual framework. So this tension between, say, the conceptual and the non-conceptual or between insight versus a kind of meditative, concentrative absorption. This tension or difference has existed from the very beginning. Yeah, and there's all kinds of variation in the description of even, you know, various early arhats awakening. Mm-hmm. You know, is it do you have to go to the fourth jhana and then do the thing, or right. do you go up to the fourth arupa ayatana and then right. do this thing? And it's very fascinating to see that variation even in this earliest, earliest literature, because I would say there's kind of a prevailing view that and I think this comes, as you point out very rightly, from Buddhist modernism and its reinterpretation from Protestant scholars in the 19th and 20th centuries. There's this idea that there's like this really solid original material that's completely clear. <laughs> and everything since then has been this sort of like elaboration or degeneration from this original clarity. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a construction You know, we see this in European scholars in the 19th century. We see it in the 20th century, a kind of construction of the Pali suttas, one as unequivocal in what they say when there are, you know, many different things contained in the suttas, and two, the idea that it's some kind of original pure Buddhism closer to the founder when it's already at several steps removed, and then that everything else is somehow, you know, either a falling away of that or a sort of innovation And this is a construct that was created by European scholars, mainly, but then was taken up by Buddhist teachers and was used in the way that Buddhism is framed and presented in the 20th and still in the 21st century. So that, you know, many people, when they encounter Buddhism, think that that's like what Buddhism is, particularly if they're encountering, say, you know, Theravada Vipassana traditions. If they're encountering Zen, you know, then they get a different kind of discourse, obviously. And so this is something that I really try to bring out in the book a lot is that, you know, our understanding of Buddhism is constantly shaped by historical situatedness and interpretation. And that's fine because that's like how any tradition inhabits, you know, the human realm of life and history. But it's a peculiarly modernist move to try to get back behind that or outside of that to some original purity you know, one way people do that is, of course, to be fundamentalist. That's a way of trying to step outside of 
tradition and get back to some received original view. But another way people do it is to try to get back to the founder's original message. And, you know, people will say things like, well, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. And so uh, if you want to follow the Buddha's teaching, um, don't be a Buddhist, you know, try to embody the original non-religious or philosophical teaching. And that just doesn't make any sense at all, because we don't have any access to the Buddha. And even if we did, it wouldn't be the right way to think about it anyway, because he lived 2,500 years ago in a completely different society. So we would have to figure out how we are going to embody whatever it means to be a Buddhist in the world, you know, here and now today. And so this brings up a point for me, which is clearly, you know, you've been exposed to this material and Buddhism and Buddhist culture very deeply for your whole life. And so obviously you're not trying to rip apart Buddhism or somehow just neg on Buddhism. (laughs) And so what's your goal here with with this text? Yeah, that's a good question. So the way that I think about the book is that I want to be a good friend to Buddhism. And what that means for me is that you know, Buddhism has been extremely important in my own work as a philosopher and in my life in terms of meeting people and practice communities and so on, experiencing forms of Buddhist meditation and Buddhist ritual. So this has all been very important to me. So I'm not attacking or criticizing Buddhism in a hostile way. I'm trying to make a number of friendly criticisms. I mean, this might sound presumptuous, but this would be my hope nonetheless, so that the particular form of Buddhism that we see, especially in the West and say North America and Europe, the form that scholars call Buddhist modernism, that Buddhism can evolve beyond this, that it can still be modern, that is to say, exist in the modern world with a historical consciousness of itself as a rich tradition, but move beyond the form of Buddhism that claims exceptionalism for itself. I use the term Buddhist exceptionalism in the book to refer to an idea that's part of Buddhist modernism, this form of Buddhism that emerges in the 19th and 20th century in Asia and then gets exported to the West. Buddhist exceptionalism is the idea that Buddhism is special and different from other religions in being especially rational and in being empirical and scientific. So this connects back to the discussion we were just having about enlightenment. At the same time, claims some kind of you know non-conceptual transcendent insight for itself. So I think this way of thinking is, you could say it's philosophically confused because on the one hand, Buddhist modernists wanna say, it's like a science and we can enhance science with it and use science to justify it. And one way we would do that would be, say, to show that meditation practice affects the brain and enlightenment or awakening or the realization of non-self, that these are things that we can identify in the brain. And if you go down that road, then the idea is that you have to be able to make these concepts of enlightenment and awakening precise because scientists work with precise operational concepts. Or on the other hand, a different route that Buddhists go down at the same time is to say enlightenment or awakening is a kind of non-conceptual transcendent epiphany, but that's not a scientific concept. So it's like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. And my criticisms are ones where I'm trying to say, look, this way of thinking is philosophically unstable and not coherent. And moreover, it rests on confusion about what, you know, religion and science are. You know, religion is about communities of practice, 
embodied in ritual, embodied in textual traditions, and with, you might say in very general terms, some kind of sense of transcendence. And Buddhism, even in its so-called modern, you know, like secular Buddhism forms, is steeped in that sensibility. So to claim that you're not religious is in a way a kind of false consciousness. It, it's based on a misunderstanding of what religion or religiosity is. And then similarly, if you claim that, oh, well, meditation is a kind of inner science, that's a misunderstanding of how science works, because science is about open public, testable investigations that are not about assuming antecedently a value system organized around some, let's say, soteriological concept, concept having to do with liberation or awakening that is orienting the perspective. So the idea that, you know, inner practice of meditation shaped through Buddhist concepts is scientific is to misunderstand how science works. So my aim in the book is really to say, look, Buddhism is an extremely important you know, human tradition. And if it's going to thrive in a modern scientific culture, it needs to get beyond this Buddhist modernist form, which is hostage to these kind of confused and misunderstood ways of thinking about science and religion. It seems to me like one of the ways that people misunderstand this very commonly is about this idea of no-self or non-self. And there's plenty of books out there and articles out there that are going to claim that this idea is strongly backed by science and that it's identical to what Siddhartha Gautama was saying, you know, 2,500 years ago. Yeah, I think there we have an example of what I'm calling Buddhist exceptionalism. So we take an idea of non-self and we, in a way, take it out of context. And then we say, oh, science validates this when, in fact, science doesn't say that there's no self. Science says that the self is a construction. And it's a construction that, you know, plays a variety of important and essential functions. So the way that is taken out of context in the Buddhist context is in Buddhism, the point is that when it said there's no self, it said that there's no essential, permanent, abiding inner essence of the person. That's sort of, you could say, the descriptive aspect. And then the normative aspect is more, in a way, an injunction to not identify anything as self. So to not identify with any of the elements that make up the body and mind as self, because none of them is a fixed abiding and personal essence. So in the scientific context, it's true that scientists and philosophers for that matter over the past, you know, 200 years or so, they don't think of the self as a fixed abiding personal essence anyway, but they would say that's not the only way to think about self. What we've learned from the evolution of philosophical thinking and the science of psychology and biology is that the self in the sense of a sense of identity with a personal past, autobiographical memory and planning for the future and a sense of identity for oneself in a community, these are things that are constructions, but as constructs, they play important functions. Although some people will try to say, yeah, but they're illusory. They're only illusory if you think the standard for what a real self would be, would be a kind of inner, personal, unchanging essence. And in the Indian context, there was a reason why at that time the self was thought of that way. 
But we have a very different and in a way, a much more complicated way of thinking about what self is so that limiting the sense of self to that idea and then saying, okay, well, there isn't any such thing is a very narrow range of thinking about what self is that isn't really borne out by the science and philosophy of self that's arisen over the past 200 years. Let's say the whole world listens to what you're saying about these differences between science and philosophy and Buddhism and kind of, you know, straightens up and flies right and and kind of, you know, sorts these issues out. How would you like to see, let's say, science and Buddhism and philosophy interact? Like what would be a, a really positive, beautiful, and let's say constructive interaction of these different domains? So before I say specifically something about the Buddhism science relation, I would say in more general terms, I think it's important to realize that the Buddhism science dialogue is really not different from a Christianity and science dialogue or a Hinduism and science dialogue or an Islam and science dialogue. That is, in each case, we're dealing with philosophical and religious systems that frame reality and understand it in certain ways. And those ways are not really directly subject to scientific testing. So it's like asking like, well, what should the relationship between art and science be? Well, you know, art and science should respect each other as different forms of human experience and they can, you know, engage with each other and inspire each other. And that can happen with religion and science too, rather than an antagonistic relationship. And so what's needed is a larger cultural sensibility that recognizes that and doesn't try to reduce one to the other. So that's in very general terms. But if we're thinking specifically about Buddhism and science and that particular conversation, I mean, I think one of the great values of the Buddhist tradition is its intellectual philosophical tradition that can remind us and remind scientists especially of how what we might take to be fundamental and real and unquestioned and given is something that depends on our constructive human conceptual Activity. So I'm really thinking here of, say, in Buddhist philosophy, traditions like Madhyamaka and Yogacara that would challenge a kind of easy scientific reductionism or naturalism. So, for example, in the science Buddhism dialogue, the way that it usually goes is to say, well, science shows that Buddhism is right, that there is no self. But that said, from the perspective of taking the brain, as it were, as the you know ultimate reality or the essential inviolable reference point for understanding how things work in human life and cognition. Whereas a Buddhist philosophical perspective would say, well, when we investigate the brain, we're bringing certain concepts to bear and we're treating things in a way that has to do with how we can investigate and access them given our you know, tools and our repertoire so that the activity is actually concept dependent and we're not sort of stepping outside of that and getting a kind of handle on how reality is in itself independent of human conceptual activity. You know, Buddhist philosophical traditions like Madhyamaka and Yogacara are very, very rigorous and precise on arguments about the concept dependent nature of phenomena, that what we are able to observe and experience and how we think about it 
when we investigate it depends on our situation and our concepts and we can't lose sight of that and we do lose sight of that if we make the brain as currently understood in science the sort of ultimate reference point for understanding the mind so the buddhist philosophical perspective is very sophisticated in thinking about the mind and that is a very important thing i think for our culture where we can easily fall into the trap of thinking that you know the latest thing that we see in neuroscience is telling us how you know things really are in some final and absolute sense so i would like to see just to come back to sort of your question i would like to see a richer and more nuanced dialogue rather than the kind of dialogue that happens when we get books with titles like why buddhism is true which turns out to mean why evolutionary psychology is compatible with modern north american buddhism and that i think is just a very flattened version of a much richer conversation that can happen and in a way was actually the conversation that was really originally envisioned i think by varela's work in founding the mind and life institute so part of the reason why i'm writing the book is to try to reorient the discussion back to a more rich and intricate you could say uh, f- discussion around the question of worldview and philosophy and how science fits into that. And so let's imagine some completely fictitious North American meditator who reads this book, and let's say they've been doing their, let's just guess, mindfulness practice for several years now, and they're into it. How can this be of real use to them? Besides clarifying thinking, in your vision of the potential richness of human life, how would this help them with their practice? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, and this comes from my own personal experience of practicing different forms of meditation and different forms of what you know could be called mindfulness meditation. I think that when people learn meditation, especially if they learn it, say, where they go on a, you know, maybe a seven-day Vipassana retreat at a place like Spirit Rock or Insight Meditation Society, or maybe they go on a 10-day Goenka retreat, these kinds of formats, the package that they're given comes along with a rhetoric, which is you're dropping everything and you're learning to see the mind as it really is. And I think that this is very misleading and that we need to see that what happens in these contexts is we are given certain kinds of instructions that orient us in a particular way, and we're given certain conceptual systems and practices that go along with the conceptual systems that shape our experience to be certain ways. And I think if people understood that what they were doing was actually much more constructive, by constructive I mean in the sense that they're actually shaping their experience to conform to certain norms and concepts that are ethical and that are based on a certain view of what the mind is and how it works, they would then be able to more accurately assess the value of the practice for themselves and they would have a clearer view of what it is that they're actually doing. So maybe I should, you know, like actually illustrate this in terms of, you know, a personal story. And that is, I... That would be great. Yeah, I think it was 2008. I went on a seven-day retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in, you know, Barrie, Massachusetts. And it was led by Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. And it was a retreat that was designed especially for scientists studying meditation 
and for clinicians using meditation in their work and for, you could say, people who had a kind of intellectual or scholarly interest in meditation. And it came out of the community that was being built up by the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute. Sharon Salzberg had been one of the meditation teachers at the Institute. So the retreat was maybe about 100 people. And many of us had been together at the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute. And, you know, there were like scientists and postdocs and grad students and clinicians. And so there was a sense of, you know, community and excitement about all being together and doing this practice for seven days. And I had never done a seven-day Vipassana retreat before of, of that sort of Mahasi Sayadaw style of practice. I had done some Zen sessions and I had done a fair bit of yoga meditation in Hindu yoga traditions, but I had never done this before. So I was actually quite interested and quite curious to do it. And the retreat was a very powerful experience in the sense that I mean, as many of your listeners know, so we're sitting for, I suppose, about 10 hours a day. We're also doing walking meditation. You know, the retreat is in silence, except for some Dharma talks in the evening and one-on-one or small group interviews with the teachers. And what happens in this kind of setting is, well, many different things can happen depending on the person, of course. But one thing that can happen and did happen for me is this kind of building up of a sense of community and purpose, and exhilaration, and you might even say a kind of bliss at what happens when the mind quiets and the sleep rhythms change, and everybody's breathing is sort of entrained in synchrony in the room, and there's kind of a thickness that descends in the room. It's a very powerful experience. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, for me, that particular retreat was very elating in a way that actually made me a little bit suspicious. Uh, I was kind of out of the corner of my eye looking at myself thinking, you know, this is a very intense emotional reaction you're having. Like, what exactly is going on here? And other people, you know, were having more challenging reactions, and I was aware of that. So that's a dynamic that happens at these retreats as well, of course. You know, people can break into spontaneous, you know, tears, and, you know, lots of things can happen. But the point of this story is that all along the way, the discourse we were being given, or what we were hearing in the Dharma talks, was, you know, you're here, it's a special time, you're dropping concepts, you're dropping thoughts, and you're encountering things, you know, nakedly as they are. Now, as a philosopher, my ears always prick up when people make those kinds of statements. And so throughout the week, I was thinking about that and kind of watching what my reaction to that was. And it became apparent to me at a certain point that actually what was happening didn't sit with that description at all. Because what we were being given was a conceptual system or template for mapping everything that was happening to us. So concretely, we were given concepts like moment-to-moment arising, impermanence, non-self. We were given, you know, some, you might say, baby versions of Theravada Abhidharma in the sense of, you know, there are mental factors like attention and intention, and every moment has a kind of felt quality of being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And so we were being given all of this in the guise of guidelines to seeing how experience really is in itself, But in actual fact, I would say we were being given concepts and tools to mold our experience to fit that particular template. 
so that from one perspective, you could describe the retreat as, I mean, indoctrination would be a kind of strong, tendentious word maybe, but you could say that you were being shaped and oriented to see things in a certain way and to make them conform to that, not you know, you might say sort of heavy-handedly, but unconsciously your experience starts to conform to the map that you're being given of the territory. My point now is that the map is actually in some ways maybe not a map, but more a kind of, you know, like a sculptor's tool that's actually shaping things as much as revealing them. So at the end of the retreat, we had a, a kind of, you know, group sharing of our experiences and discussion and I raised this thought that I had been having all along, and the reaction to it was pretty negative on the part of most people. <laughs> it was kind of, you know, well, that's just not what's happening, or, well, that's kind of a downer that you're looking at it that way. <laughs> and that made me, you know, all the more suspicious. You know, this is a kind of roundabout way of saying that through my own experience, I've come to think of these events like meditation retreats or sessions as ritualistic community practices that shape reality in a certain way as much as reveal it as antecedently being a certain way. And I think it's important for people to know and understand this. I think if people really knew and understood this, they would be better able to think about what they're experiencing and why it's important to them and why they might or might not continue to do it. Yes, it shapes one's choices about which communities to be a part of, which teachers to work with, which viewpoints are interesting. Exactly. And, you know, while I'm on this, I might as well throw in another thing in the mix, and that is that, as I'm sure, you know, many of your listeners know, and I grew up observing some of this. This is why it's sort of personally significant to me. Many of these communities are just completely turned over and buffeted by abuse. And even not in the case of abuse, but if we just say, you know, complex interpersonal dynamics, but in some cases, actual, you know, sexual abuse and exploitation. And if people want to make choices about what communities to join and what practices they want to engage with in their lives, then it's important to see that this constructive aspect is always there, and sometimes it can go in very bad and negative directions. And rather than saying, oh, this person is enlightened, but they are also, you know, abusive, and being sort of torn apart by that, as happens, you know, for many people, if one saw that this was a kind of complex social construction from the beginning, one might then be able to say, well, actually, the way that the construction is happening is wrong and is hurtful and is not appropriate for our society. You know, traditional hierarchical, you know, gender patterns and exploitation and relations that we might see in another society or that that's not, you know, what we're about and what we're trying to do as, you know, 21st century Westerners. That might bring a little bit of a different perspective on some of that stuff that unfortunately continually happens to this day. Yeah, it seems like creating new ways to understand this ancient teaching or creating new constructions that are more appropriate for our society and our culture is the project that's going on, or let's say beginning to happen or maybe continuing to happen 
in Buddhist communities and also other types of religious communities, mm -hmm. right? This continuing dialogue between the sort of received material and our understanding of it and ways that that can be interpreted and lived out as a practice and as a sangha and so on. Mm -hmm. It seems like we've had enough decades now of rank misconduct mm. and literally, you know, criminal abuse yeah. coming out of some of these constructions that it's clearly time, long, long, long past time, but clearly time to start to take more of an active role in shaping some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Evan, I am a big fan of your books and your work, so I just have to ask you, <laughs> what's coming next? That's a great question. I'm working on two different things in parallel at the moment. I am writing a book with two friends and colleagues who are scientists, Adam Frank, who's an astrophysicist, and Marcelo Gleiser, who's a theoretical physicist. Uh, Adam's mm -hmm. at the University of Rochester and Marcelo's at Dartmouth College. We wrote an article together that was published in the online magazine ION, and it was called The Blind Spot. And we're basically developing that article into a book. It's a book about science and human experience. And the core idea there is that science is a method for engaging with reality in a certain way. And it often forgets its source in human experience, which always exceeds what that method itself can do and is the source of that method. And that's the blind spot of science or of the scientific worldview, really. It's not a problem for science. It's a problem for a certain way of thinking about science as kind of the final authority on everything. And so we're using this image of the blind spot of the scientific worldview, and we're showing how it arises across a whole range of domains, mind and consciousness and life and the nature of time and the nature of matter and our present kind of environmental crisis of the biosphere. So we're writing that book now, and we hope to be done that in about a year and a half. MIT Press is going to publish it. Fascinating. So that's one project. And then the other project, which is really kind of in its earliest stages, is a book about death. And this uh, book comes out of the chapter on dying and death in my book, Waking, Dreaming, Being. And in that chapter, I'm concerned with what happens to the mind and consciousness in the final moments in the dying process and how, although, you know, our culture has this amazingly detailed biomedical knowledge, unlike any other time in human history, we actually have a very limited understanding of the experiential process of transformation in dying and death. And so what I'm trying to do in that book is to draw on a variety of world traditions, including Buddhism, but also ancient Greek philosophy and ancient Chinese philosophy to bring back what was really central in the philosophical thinking of the ancient world, which is the nature of human life in the face of dissolution and death and how that kind of sensibility is really required to complement the biomedical perspective that we have that although very you know powerful and important also hides death from us in so many ways so that book is in its very early stages it's called death the ultimate transformation mm -hmm. and probably will be a couple of years before that one sees its way into the world well, you are probably not aware of this, but this is an area of very special interest for me. And I, you know, 
teach a once a month session at San Francisco Dharma Collective called Death Sangha, huh? where we go into some of this material, both in discussion and experientially in meditation and so on. So it's like, I can't wait to oh, see. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. We'll have to talk more about that. I'd love to know more about that. And I can't wait to see that book when it comes out. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast, Evan. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me again. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class.
The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R.com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>